I'm going to start tonight in Mark chapter 4. I've had a, a phrase that's been going on uh, over and over again on the inside of me for the last couple of days, and that is faith is a seed. So I want to read beginning in Mark chapter 4 where uh, Jesus gives us the parable of the sower sowing the word. Verse 1, and he began to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude. Now, I don't know how big a great multitude is, but it, it uh, gives me a picture of a whole lot of people. Keep that in mind. There was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth. And immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Now, the word root is literally the word moisture. It dried up. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit, and sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some a hundredfold. And he said unto them, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the disciples came to him afterwards, and, and they wanted to talk to him about it, and we'll get into the things that Jesus responded. <clears throat> but I want you to notice something. First of all, it says that there was a great multitude that came to him, and the implication is, uh, you judge this for yourself, but the implication is to me that there was such a big crowd of people, he really needed to get out away from them on the seashore because they were pressing upon him to such a degree that they were pushing him toward the water. Um, whether that's entirely accurate or not, that's the, the mental picture I get when I read this story. Now, when Jesus is, t uh, is teaching, he's got an opportunity to say anything he wants to to this great multitude. What does he tell them? He tells them that the word's not going to work for all of them. He goes into detail and talks about the different types of ground. We'll read it and see what he said in just a moment. But he's saying that not every type of ground is going to produce the, uh, the results that God has sent him here to the earth to bring about. Isn't that a strange thing to be teaching the great multitude? Seems to me like the great multitude, in our way of thinking at least, and I'm sure our way of thinking isn't always the same as God's. But in our way of thinking, if we got a great multitude like that, we'd want to tell everybody what belongs to them. We'd want to tell everybody how they can receive. We'd want to tell everybody whatever we could that would inspire them, aid them, help in any way for them to have everything that Jesus was sent to the earth to bring. Everything that Jesus was sent to the earth to reveal about the Father, it would seem like the great multitude would be a perfect opportunity for Jesus to try to help them along in that way. But that's not what he teaches them. He teaches them that the word of God, he'll explain and expound on it in a few verses when the disciples are asking for explanation. We know, because we read it before, that the sower sows the word. Sowing the, sowing the seed is like planting seed in the ground. So there can't be anything wrong with the seed. Same seed, same potential, same power, same blessing of God is available for all four types of ground that refer to different types of people. And Jesus tells them right off the bat, this isn't going to work for everybody. Now, it can work for everybody. But because of the condition of people's hearts, it won't work for everybody. 
the disciples came to him privately and asked him about the parable, verse 11, and he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. The word mystery is the word secret. It's a word that's used from the Greek language as part of an initiation rite. In other words, it means a secret that's known only to those that are part of the group. And the part of the group that he's talking about, the group that he's talking about, has to do with the church. We understand that. So he's saying this is the secret. This parable unlocks the secret that should be known by all believers. The mystery of the kingdom of God. Now we've looked at other points, at other, other places where Jesus talked to him about the kingdom of God. We know that Jesus sent the disciples out to preach the kingdom of God. To go in places before he had been. Sent them two by two and told them to preach the kingdom of God. Heal the sick that are therein. If the people would receive you and so forth. We know by definition in what's called the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. But in what's known in church circles as the Lord's Prayer. Jesus had the disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom of God is literally that territory, that place where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. And we understand there's no sickness and disease in heaven, so the kingdom of God here on the earth concerning sickness and disease would be the removal thereof of every sickness and every disease. And Jesus says that this is the mystery. This parable is the mystery or the secret of how the kingdom of God works, of how to get God's will in your life here on the earth. Unto you it is given to know the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, outside the family of God, outside of those, in Jesus' case, outside of those that would receive him as the Messiah, the promised one, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see, they think they're so wise, but they don't get it. Seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand. Lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Now that verse sounds like God doesn't want to forgive everybody's sins. But what he's saying is simply this. The forgiveness of sins as well as all the blessings of God are contingent on the right attitude of heart. It doesn't come on somebody just because they're of the seed of Abraham. Literal descendants of Abraham. It doesn't come on somebody because they belong to a certain church. It doesn't come on people because they've done something that they think is good in God's sight. It has to do with the attitude of heart. It has to do with faith. See, the Jews were willing to have all the good things God wanted for them. As long as they could have it their way. That's why Jesus got in trouble nearly everywhere he went by healing on the Sabbath day. The Jews said, no, it can't work that way. Well, I'm sorry, but that's the way that it worked. And instead of changing their attitude about how God works and when he'll work and what he'll do, they wanted to get rid of Jesus because he was messing up their program. So he said, unto you is given to know the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, outside the family of God, or those that are, whose hearts are toward God, all these things are done in parables that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? In other words, Jesus is saying that there's something about this one that's super important because it's the secret to how the whole kingdom of God works and it's the key to understanding all the other parables. That would make this pretty important, wouldn't it? 
Then he starts explaining what he taught them. The sower sows the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Satan's got some people so distracted they don't even listen to what's being said. It has no impact on them whatsoever. It bounces off of them completely. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground. Who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness. And when they have no root or no moisture in themselves and so endure but for a time. Afterward when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake immediately they are offended. In other words they don't care, take care of what they heard. They were glad to hear it. But their attitude toward God and toward the things of God was such that they wouldn't take care of the word. They wouldn't take care of what was sown in their hearts. So that's two types of ground that the word doesn't produce anything for them at all. Two types of people that won't receive anything from the word. Now, is there a problem with the seed? No, there can't be a problem with the seed. Folks, this is so common, it's not even funny. Psalm 107 verse 20 says that the Lord God sent his word and healed them. I can show you people and have seen people throughout the last 31 years of me pastoring this church, and even before that, to be honest with you, that will take healing on any other terms except through faith in the word. Everybody that's sick wants to be well. No question about that. The question is, will you receive it according to God's plan and the way that he's offered it? And not everybody will. It's a sad truth, but it is true. And these are they which are sown among thorns, verse 18, such as hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. They're in the same boat as the stony ground. Same results. They don't take care of the word that was planted and they get distracted by other things. Their desire for other things becomes greater than their desire for the word or what the word promises them. And so it gets choked out. The truth of the word gets choked out. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. The Bible says that God created the whole universe with words. There is nothing that is more powerful than the word of God. Yet here the word of God is stymied, rendered unfruitful, unproductive in three different types of people. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit. Luke chapter 8 says of this uh, uh, account, speaking of this point in the parable, they said, uh, these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and keep it and bring forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Now, what's the difference among those for whom the word produced results as opposed to those that it produced no results. There's one difference and only one difference, and that's attitude toward the word. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 22 said, My son, attend unto my words. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from before your eyes and keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life unto those that find it. And health to all their flesh. 
There must be a difference between hearing and finding. There must be a difference between hearing, meaning listening to, and finding the truth of the word. My words are life unto those that find them. Not everybody finds them. Not even everybody that hears the word preached or reads the word on the page finds it. It has everything to do with the attitude. It has everything to do with, from what Jesus explained, it has everything to do with not being distracted by affliction, trouble, difficulty, hard places, persecution, people making fun of you for being one of those faith people. not being distracted by the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches or the lusts of other things the word lust just means desire don't get distracted so that other things become more important to you than the word but even among those for whom the the uh, the word produces results notice the difference in the results among those people some produce 30 fold results some produce 60 fold results and some produce 100 fold So even among those that receive the word and keep it, have the right attitude, the results vary based on the the degree of their attitude toward the word, the measure of their attitude toward the word. Now, if you do the math, Jesus is saying about 8% will produce 100-fold results because only one-third... 25% produce maximum results. Now, what is God's plan for for the word to produce? Didn't God intend for the word to produce maximum results for everybody? That would have to be true or else he'd be a respecter of persons, and he's not. So the word's available to everybody to produce maximum yield. Can you see that? But only about 8%, one-third to 25%, are going to get maximum re-yield or reach its full potential. That's sad. But that knowledge makes me want to be determined even more to be part of that 8%. Now, Jesus goes on and tells them some other things. We'll keep reading. In verse 21, and he said unto them, is the candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come forth, should come abroad. I believe Jesus is, is saying there that time will show who's ha- who has the right attitude toward the word, no matter what they look like or what they claim. It'll show up. Our attention to the word, our Love for the word, our care for the word, eventually will show up. But notice he says this again in verse 23, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. He said that in verse 9, I believe it was, when he was teaching the parable. Yeah, Mark chapter 4, verse 9, he said unto them, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he says the same thing in verse 23, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. That must be an important point. And I believe that we could say, without fear of contradiction, that having ears to hear the word is the degree of attention you give to it. So if that's true, 
Then when Jesus is teaching the parable of the sower sowing the word, telling us that only one of the four types of ground will produce results and only one-third of that, 25%, will produce maximum results or reach full potential. He's telling everybody that it's up to you. Anybody can have ears to hear. Whether or not we do is up to us. The wayside type of ground can become maximum yield good ground, hundredfold good ground. The stony ground can become hundredfold good ground. The thorny ground can become hundredfold good ground. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's keep reading. Verse 26. Uh, Wait a minute, I skipped a little bit. Let me back up to verse 24. Verse 23 says, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, take heed what you hear. With what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. The attention you give to the word is the results that it will produce. And unto you that hath, shall more be given. Hath means, means has ears to hear. In other words, if you give attention to the word, if you have ears to hear the word, then you'll grow. You may not start off as the hundredfold good ground, but you can grow into that. Take heed what you hear, with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you, and unto you that hath shall more be given. For he that hath ears to hear, to him shall be given, and he that hath not ears to hear, from him shall be taken even that which he has. And he said, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground. Now Jesus is telling his disciples something that's very important, very important for us to know as well, and that is, he says that this is how the whole kingdom of God works. Everything about the kingdom of God, where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Everything about the will of God is like casting or planting seed into the ground. Well, in what respect? What do you mean, Jesus? So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast or plant seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring up and grow or should should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. Folks, Underline verse 27 in your Bible or however you mark things. This is one of the most important things Jesus said. Jesus is saying very specifically that you don't have to know how it works for it to work. And that is the simple point that so many people get stuck on. You'll teach faith. You'll teach about believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. The importance of confession, right confession and so forth. And people will say, well, I just don't understand that. That's okay. It still works even though you don't understand. And that's the point Jesus is making. It's a point that the devil tries to bring to people's attention and trip them up with. Because it's a paradox to believe something has already happened and to look for God to do something about it. For example, James chapter 5 says in verse 14, it says in the prayer of faith, verse 15, says the prayer of faith shall save the sick or heal the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And the Lord shall raise him up. If you believe you receive something that Jesus has already done, what point is there for the Lord to raise you up? And what do you believe for? Do you believe Jesus already took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses? Or do you believe the Lord will raise you up? See, folks, there's a paradox that people get tripped up on. But I've found that any time the devil comes to me and questions me about, well, how's this going to work? I just remind him that I don't have to know how. The kingdom of God works by me holding fast to it 
day after day after day, week after week after week if necessary, month after month after month if necessary, year after year after year if necessary. And it works, even though I don't have to know how. If God required everybody to understand everything, then none of us would make it. But you don't have to. You don't have to know how. You don't have to understand it. If you just believe it and put it in practice, it'll work every time. So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring up, spring and grow up. He knoweth not how, for the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself. First the blade, then the ear, and then the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. I believe Jesus is telling us there that just like you don't know how a seed grows in the ground, but it always produces fruit if it's taken care of, in the same way the kingdom of God works. As we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, give attention to the word of God that has promised us healing, deliverance, whatever it is we're looking for, it'll work even though we don't know how. Now, verse 30, and he said, whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? He wants us to know about the kingdom of God. He wants us to know how to receive everything that God sent his word to accomplish. Wherefore, or whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out great branches So that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. And with many such parables spake he the word unto them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone he expounded all things to his disciples. The one analogy, the one example Jesus uses about the kingdom of God and how it works. He chooses the smallest thing that they can relate to which is a grain of mustard seed. Now, when a grain of mustard seed is planted, and I've looked this up, I've never had or planted any mustard seed myself, don't really want a mustard tree, but I've done a little bit of research, and the grain of mustard seed is about the size of a pencil point that you can mark on the paper. Well, if we take it into, uh, put it into the comparison or the illustration of what we're looking for the grain of mustard seed to produce like healing for the physical body the seed that's planted the word of god that's planted looks like it's no match for the problem by sheer size and scope of the problem it looks like there's no way in the world that something as small as a mustard seed applied to the circumstances and the situations that we have in our bodies our physical bodies due to sickness and disease it seems like there's no way that it could accomplish what we want it to do. But Jesus said, even though you don't know how, you plant it and take care of it. Make sure you water it by continuing to confess the word of God. Continuing to confess what belongs to you. That seed that looks overmatched by the problem becomes bigger than any problem that you can have. And that's the example that he uses. It used to tickle me. You don't hear it so much anymore, but it used to tickle me when people would say, well, I'm not sure I've got enough faith. Well, you've got a pencil point measure of faith, don't you? Anybody has this born again. God has delivered to each one of us the measure of faith. He's dealt to each one of us the measure of faith. Well, that's bigger than a pencil point. 
And Jesus said that the word of God planted in good ground, attended to, and held fast to will become bigger than any problem that you have in your life. Folks, that's either true or it's not. Jesus either told us the truth or he lied outright. If he lied outright, then he's a liar, and that means he's a sinner and not a worthy sacrifice. So I think we can conclude that he told us the truth. You know, through the years, there have been times where people would come and people have different ideas and about uh, healing and the healing power of God and how it works. Most times people are looking for somebody that's got an anointing to heal. Most people are looking for somebody else that has something special from God to do what they need done to drive out sickness and disease from their body. But if you can just get people to do what the Bible says to do, if you can just get them, and sometimes you have to talk them into it because they're not content with this and this alone. And I guess I understand that because we tell the stories about people having hands laid on them and having the healing power of God ministered to them and so on, so forth, so on and so forth. And most of those become the stories that we tell and the stories that uh, that are passed around and the things that people hear. We magnify the healing power of God or a healing ministry in somebody else much more than we magnify the power of the word to heal. And so I guess that's where people put their faith. But that's not what our faith is supposed to be in. Paul talked about this when he went to the Corinthians. He said, I came not to you with eloquent words of man's wisdom, but in simple truth of the word that your, power, that your faith would rest in the power of God's word rather than something that he had for them. Paul had, had a great anointing on him, didn't he? He did some marvelous things. He raised one little boy from the dead, teenage boy from the dead that fell out of the third story window while he was preaching. Moral of that story is do not fall asleep during church. But Paul said that he wanted people's faith to be in the power of God through this word. And not in his ministry or his anointing. But if you can just get people to do what the word says. If you can just get people to do it. If you can just get people to start saying about themselves what the Bible says about them. If you can just get people to say that Jesus took their infirmities and bore their sicknesses and with his stripes they were healed. Now, Brother Hagin used to deal with this a lot. He would go into churches and, and uh, I think the, uh, well, as he said himself numerous times, that he got to the place, he couldn't start off this way, but he got to the place where he was in demand to come and hold meetings in churches so he wouldn't accept a meeting for less than three weeks. Now, we wouldn't even imagine having a three-week seminar or three-week meeting in church today. But that was the minimum for him. He stayed up to nine weeks in one certain place. I think that was the longest time that he had at any one location. <clears throat> but he would teach in the mornings faith messages, messages on healing and so forth. And he'd minister healing at night. And he would encourage people to come to those early morning services, daytime services, before they'd get in the healing line. He would recommend to them that they would come for three or four days and sit in those day teachings to hear about the, what the word says 
God has done for them through the work of Jesus before they got in the healing line. And he said, a lot of times I'd have people that would come up to me in the beginning of the services or beginning of the weeks, beginning of the meetings, and they would indicate what they wanted to be healed of. Brother Hagin, I'm believing to be healed of so-and-so, whatever sickness or disease had attacked their body. And he would tell them without fail. He'd say, well, that's good. I believe you'll receive your healing. But let's do something about it. Let's do it the right way. Come to these morning teaching sessions. Don't just come in the healing line at night. Come to these morning sessions where you can hear the word. And many times people who were serious about uh, receiving their healing and people didn't work outside the home and so much in those days as they do today. Many times they'd say, oh, I'm going to be here every service. Well, almost without fail, by the end of the several-week meeting, those people would receive their healing. Because he would teach them what the Word says that Jesus has done to affect our healing from sickness and disease. And he would encourage them to begin to say what the Word says about them and about their healing before he ever laid hands on them. And the percentage of people that when they acted on the word in that way that received what they needed from God, the healing that they needed from God was astounding. But he said there was a difference. He, he went home to be with the Lord in uh, 2003. And he said that uh, particularly following the healing revival, he said there were so many miracles that were done. There were so many great outstanding stories that everybody had heard about through numerous healing evangelists and healing meetings and so forth. He said people uh, were expectant in a much greater way than they were even 20 years later. He said the faith of the congregations would be so high to start with in comparison to what we have today. Today meaning 15 years ago. He said people were expecting God to do great things. You don't find many people that are expecting God to do anything nowadays. I believe our distraction level is much higher now than it used to be. There are more opportunities. We have more money. We have more freedom. We have more opportunity in a number of ways to do just about anything that we want. I mean, look at the area we live in. You can go to the beach or you can drive an hour and 30 minutes away and go to the mountains. Hardly any part of society whatsoever respects church anymore. Everybody's open seven days a week. All these things are things the devil uses to fight you. All of these things are the cares of this world that can distract you from receiving what the word of God was intended and designed to do. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't have a plan to fix it. I don't know what to do to fix it. If we brought somebody in for a three-week meeting, there'd be some excitement the first week or so. Then after that, it'd just be alone time with the guest speaker. And I can't fault people for that. I mean, we've got things that we have to take care of in our lives. Good things, necessary things. I'm not finding fault with anybody. 
But I think it's important that we realize that the distraction level in our lives is, is at probably the highest point that it's ever been in the history of mankind. And we don't get a pass from having ears to hear just because we're busy. It's not like Jesus said in their day, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. But he would say to us, well, I know you got things going on. Just give me a few minutes. Yet that's the way that many people are looking to receive from God. It's like God's part of the drive through window activities of our lives. We'll give him just a short window of opportunity. And after that, we've got to be moving on. It's hard to receive like that, folks. It's hard for any of us to receive like that. But Jesus said the whole of the kingdom of God, the mystery, the secret of the kingdom of God is like planting a seed in the ground. It doesn't matter what the seed looks like when it goes in. The seed's the word of God, and it has more than enough power for anything you need. But you do have to take care of it. You do have to take care of it. You don't have to understand how it works, but you do have to take care of it. I remember hearing Brother Hagin tell stories many times, numerous times, where he would explain to somebody, here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin to say, Jesus took your infirmities and bare your sicknesses, and with his stripes you were healed. On such and such a date, at such and such a time, hands were laid on you to minister the healing power of God. I believe I received my healing at that point. People would respond to him. They'd come up after the service many times, and he would encourage them. Now say, begin to say that I received my healing tonight after hands laid on me. Let that be a point of contact where something was done where you take hold of, by faith, something that's already been accomplished. And people would respond to him and say, well, Brother Hagin, I don't understand that. He said, that's all right. I don't understand it all either. But this is how to make it work. And they do it and they receive. Well, I believe God's just as good in our days as he was in those days. I believe the healing power of God is just as real and just as powerful and just as effective in our days as it was in the healing revival days. Don't you? God never changes. People may change. People's attitude toward God may change. But God never changes. So anything that was of him, including the healing power of, that was used and manifested in those days back in the 50s, 40, uh, well, healing revival was really 47 to 57. I believe the power of God is just as effective for us as it is for them. But it might be important for us to realize that we may be swimming upstream a little bit more than they had to. That's not enough to stop the word of God from being real or from coming to pass in our lives. But I think we need to be honest with ourselves about the day that we live. Now, folks, don't get me wrong. I believe there's coming a day where there's going to be, well, I believe it'll be just as it was prophesied through men of great renown. Smith Wigglesworth talked about the last revival before Jesus comes as being one of the, the power of God, the demonstration of God, and the word of God. Now, we've had revivals like that separately. In the 80s, there was a teaching revival. People were flocking to convention centers and hotel ballrooms, any place that they had meetings with Bibles in hand and notebooks and multicolored pens so that they could underline in their Bible with rainbow colors if necessary. People were scrambling to get to the Word. 
Well, that ran its course. You don't find many of those meetings nowadays. We still have an appreciation for the word. Many people do. But you don't have the teaching meetings that you had before. Now the emphasis is on preaching. People are flocking to people, ministers that are encouragers. Nothing wrong with that. Barnabas was an encourager. But people don't have the same attitude toward the teaching of the word that they did back in 1980-something. Does that change the word? Does that change God? No, I don't believe it does. But Wigglesworth prophesied that the last revival would not only be a teaching, um, a revival of appreciation for the word of God, the teaching of the word. He saw that. He saw that. He prophesied. That he could see a day when people would flock to the healing power of God. He saw the healing revival. He died in 41 and it didn't start until 47. But he saw it coming. He told people there would be a time in the not too distant future where the healing power of God would sweep the country. And it did. And then he said he saw another revival. He saw three as a matter of fact. One revival he saw was the manifestation of the, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That was a charismatic revival that happened in the 60s. And then he saw the, the, healing, I mean the uh, teaching revival. He saw people flocking to auditoriums with pens and notebooks and Bibles in hand. But he said the last revival would be one that encompasses the others. It would be the healing power of God. And a desire for the word again. I'm looking forward to that. Aren't you? He that has ears to hear, let him hear. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Folks, I don't think that the word of God should ever become a, a chore or a, a part of our checklist. I know for me, I want to get in the Word because I love the Word. That's how I found God, is through His Word. That's how I fellowship with God, is through His Word. That's how I discovered the character and the nature of God, through His Word. Jesus said, heaven and earth have passed away, but the Word of God will never fail. Well, then that has to be true for you and me too then, doesn't it? Heaven and earth may pass away, and it will. But the word of God will never change. The word of God that you choose to hear will never change, and it will never change in its effectiveness or in its power to produce results, the results that you need in your body. We could say it this way. The healing power of God, the healing word of God, will never pass away. Heaven and earth will. But the healing word of God will stand forever. And that has to mean that if you're the only person in the world that believes it. If you're swimming upstream from every other Christian organization. Every other church teaching or church doctrine. If you're swimming upstream from the cares of the world. Lusts of other things and the deceitfulness of riches along with affliction and persecution. You can still make it work for you. Because there's a great mystery to the kingdom of God. There's a great mystery 
to having the will of God in your life here on the earth just like it is in heaven. And that mystery is the seed of God's word planted and cared for and watered and attended to. It'll never fail. It'll never fail. I believe that the power of God will be so in evidence in the last days that people will choose to turn their back on the other things that used to distract them and run to find out about God. Now, that may mean that things get worse and worse in the world. One of the things that's intrigued me, and I don't claim to have the answer on this, but I have a thought. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, where it talks about the glory of God, the glory of the latter house being greater than of the former. One of the things that it says there in, the, in verse 9, it says, and in this place will I give peace. That struck me one day that that might be a contrast to what things are like in the world. It's possible, perhaps likely, that people will run to church because it's a place of peace. Maybe that's what will draw them in. I'm not sure, but I know this, he will draw them in. Whether in that way or some other way, he will draw them in. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will never fail. Under you, just like to the disciples, under you it's given to know the mystery, the secret of the whole of the kingdom of God. You've got a secret that other people don't know, folks. You've got a secret that most Christians don't know. And that is the word of God planted in your heart like a seed will always produce if you take care of it. If you take care of it. How do we take care of it? By attending to his word. By confessing what the word says about us and about what's been done for us. By not allowing the cares of this world or other things to pull us away from the reality of God's word. God's word is the most powerful thing there is in the universe. All you have to do is plant it in good ground and keep it. And it will produce every time. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we love your word. It's a privilege, Father, to walk by faith. It's a privilege to see your word overcome circumstances and situations that seem way, way, way too big. It's a privilege to see your word produce in spite of the work of the enemy. It's a privilege, Father, for us to see the authority that we have in the name of Jesus through the spoken word. Therefore, Father, we declare that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We're not healed because of how we feel. We're not healed because the doctor says we're healed. We're healed because your word says you took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. We speak healing in the face of circumstances, contradicting circumstances. We speak healing in the face of sickness and disease. We speak healing in the face of the evil one and and all of his works. 
we call our bodies well in Jesus' name. We call our bodies restored in Jesus' name. We call our bodies healed in Jesus' name. Now, Lord, for many of us, that simple confession doesn't seem near big enough to take care of the situations that exist in our bodies. But you said that the whole of the kingdom of God is like planting a grain of mustard seed into the ground. It may not look like much when it starts, but as we attend to it and take care of it, it grows into bigger and better blessings so that it seems will seem that the sickness that we fought against and stood against was nothing in comparison to it. Father, I pray for these people. I pray for the people of my church as I have numerous times before that you would open their eyes to the truth, that they would see the truth of your healing power and your healing mercy and your will to heal like they've never seen it before. Father, I pray that you would strengthen their faith to receive from you, not from me, not from some other man, but from you, that their faith would rest in the power of your word, which always works. Father, I thank you for raising up every person that's fighting sickness and disease that's a part of your family in this church. That your healing power would manifest to each and every one of them. Whether it be a small thing or a large thing. Whether it be a small matter of healing or a great matter of healing. It's all the same to you. These people have put your word first, Lord. They have done and are doing everything that they know and everything in their power to believe and act on your word. You said, Lord, that you watch over your word to perform it. So I thank you for performing it in the lives and in the bodies of each and every one of these people. In Jesus' precious name. We worship you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your willingness to manifest your healing power. We thank you for raising them up. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, I ask that you would let there be a wave of healing in our church. That healing would flow like a river. And that salvation would rise as the tide. Let this be a place where the healing power of God is known to be manifested. So that people would flock. To know you and experience your goodness. Healing has always been the dinner bell. In every part of the church. In every age and every decade. Even as it was in Jesus ministry. Ring the bell father. Ring the bell to bring in the lost. Ring the bell the bell of healing so that the name of Jesus may be glorified. 
We ask these things in the precious and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, our healer. And we thank you, Father, for doing exceeding abundantly above all that we know to ask and think. Let your glory be manifest so that we look back at this prayer and say we didn't ask big enough. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We worship you, Father. We worship you. We magnify your holy name. What a privilege it is to stand in faith and to see your word work in every circumstance against every sickness and every disease. We declare ourselves to be victors, victorious by the word of God. We love you, Father. We thank you for being so good to us. We thank you for showing your love to us. We thank you that the kingdom of God is ours now. Where the will of God is done on the earth in our lives, just like it will be in heaven. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Say it with me. I'm more than a conqueror through him who loved me. Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. And with his stripes, I am healed. I call my body well. According to the word of God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I believe we're coming into a wonderful, wonderful day, wonderful period of time in the history of the church. I believe we'll see the glory of God manifested. I believe everything we prayed for will come to pass because it's the will of God. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us. We love you. And you're dismissed.